0: Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the ancient world. Episode 25, The Voyage of Solon Around 590 BC, as the great lawgiver Solon of Athens was preparing for his extended Mediterranean cruise, he received a letter from a friend and colleague, offering him the hospitality of Ionia. If you leave Athens, it seems to me that you could most conveniently set up your abode in Miletus, which is an Athenian colony, for there you incur no risk. If you are vexed at the thought that we are governed by a tyrant, hating as you do all absolute rulers, you would at least enjoy the society of your friends. Bias wrote inviting you to Pryene, and if you prefer the town of Priene for a residence, I myself will come and live with you. As it turns out, this letter, recorded by the 3rd century AD Greek writer Diogenes Laertius, is one of only two pieces of writing to survive from one of the most important thinkers of all time, and the man commonly considered the first great philosopher in the Western tradition, Thales of Miletus. Thales was born in 624 BC, making him 14 years Solons Jr., to a noble Phoenician family. The Miletus of his youth was ruled by the tyrant Thrasybulus, ally of Periander of Corinth, and in frequent conflict with the neighboring kingdom of Lydia. There's even a fun anecdote that Periander gave Thrasybulus advice on governing by walking with him through a field and silently lopping off the tallest ears of corn with a stick. Around 590 BC, Thrasybulus had concluded a peace treaty with the Lydian king Aliates that enabled Lydia to direct her forces westward against the Medes. As discussed previously, the ensuing five years of conflict culminated in the 585 BC Battle of the Hollis River, where both Lydians and Medians were stunned into a ceasefire by an unexpected total solar eclipse. Except, funnily enough, the solar eclipse had been predicted, with unerring accuracy, by one Thales of Miletus. It's highly doubtful that the prediction occurred in a vacuum. After all, Miletus had cultural contacts with Lydia, and through them, knowledge of Babylonian mathematics and astronomy. The Babylonians knew that solar eclipses occurred in 19-year cycles, though they had no way of predicting exactly where they would be visible. Thales was probably working with similar information, and it was partly luck that the eclipse he predicted directly impacted the Anatolian region that he called home. Nevertheless, when word of his prediction spread, Thales' fame grew proportionally, and many of his new and important ideas rode the ensuing wave of publicity. Thales is reported to have traveled to Egypt, where he obtained an understanding of the science of geometry. Not in terms of proofs, like those developed by the later Greek philosopher Pythagoras, but through surveying techniques and general rules of thumb. This knowledge supposedly enabled him to calculate the distance of a ship at sea, based on observations taken at two points on land, and the height of an Egyptian pyramid based on the length of its shadow. One of Thales' core beliefs was that water was the primal substance from which all things were formed. In a novel departure from previous thinkers, he attempted to devise physical experiments to test his hypotheses, making him the first man in history to employ what would later be called the scientific method. While both his philosophy and experiments were fairly rudimentary, they sparked new thoughts and pointed the way toward later Greek scientific and philosophical development. Perhaps the most important concept he popularized, at least among the Greek philosophical community, was that natural phenomena could be known empirically and were governed by natural laws that did not rely on reference to either mythology or to the gods. In another effort to prove the practical value of scientific thinking— Thales supposedly used astronomical observations to predict the conditions for a good olive harvest far in advance, cornered the market on olive presses, then rented them out for large sums when the harvest came through as predicted. Thus, Aristotle later recorded, he showed the world that philosophers can easily be rich if they like, but that their ambitions are of another sort." Shortly after the Battle of the Hollis River, Thales received his first formal honor from the larger Greek world. In 582 BC, the Athenian archon Damasius named seven sages of Greece, men either living or dead, who had displayed extraordinary intelligence and wisdom during their lifetimes. The first sage he named was Thales of Miletus. Thales was joined in this honor by his friend, colleague, and favorite son of Athens, Solon, the lawgiver; two tyrants, Periander of Corinth and Cleobulus of Lindos on the island of Rhodes; and three other prominent politicians, Cylon of Sparta, Bias of Priene, and Pittacus of Lesbos. As mentioned previously, each of these sages was permitted to inscribe an axiom at the great temple of Apollo at Delphi. Thales is credited with inscribing either Know Thyself or Water is Best, while Solon, unsurprisingly, went with Everything in Moderation. Speaking of Solon, let's knock back some Dramamine, slather on some Sunblock, and rejoin the Lawgiver at the start of his Mediterranean Cruise. His first stop, around 589 BC, was Egypt, now under the rule of the pharaoh Aprius, or Wahibre, son of Samtik II. Ever since his great-grandfather Samtik I had enlisted Greek mercenaries to break the Assyrian hold on his kingdom, Egypt had maintained warm relations with the Hellenes, and often hosted Greek dignitaries at the royal palace at Sais. Solon was no exception, and the pharaoh welcomed the esteemed lawgiver as an honored guest. Solon apparently spent at least some of his stay engaging in philosophical discussions with two prominent Egyptian priests, Sanophis of Heliopolis and Sankis of Sais. If sightseeing was on his agenda, the ambitious pharaohs of the 26th dynasty had given Solon plenty to marvel at. For starters, there was the canal and nearby city of Per Temu inaugurated by Neko II in an attempt to bridge the Mediterranean and Red Seas. There was also Necho's new fleet, triremes prominent among them, that Solon must have encountered as he'd approached the mouth of the Nile. As restless and forward-thinking as Necho was, his building efforts were matched by those of his son, Aprius's father, Samtik II. During his short six-year reign, one that also saw major conflicts with both Kush and Babylonia, Samtik II had found the time to put his stamp on Egypt through several acts of monumental construction. There was the massive new temple built at Saïs, another at the Karga Oasis dedicated to the triad of Amun, Mut, and Khonsu, and two twenty-meter-high obelisks raised at Heliopolis, one of which would later be appropriated by the Roman Emperor Augustus. Samtik also built a small kiosk on Philae near the first cataract, widely considered the oldest structure on the island. Philae would later see extensive construction during the Ptolemaic period, eventually becoming a major temple of the goddess Isis before being officially closed down in the 6th century AD by the Byzantine emperor Justinian. The new pharaoh Aprius would carry on the family tradition through new additions to the temples at Saïs, Athribis, Memphis, and the Bahariya Oasis. An obelisk Aprius erected at Sais would be repurposed by the Roman emperor Diocletian in the 3rd century AD to adorn the Temple of Isis in Rome. Today, the same obelisk stands in front of Rome's Santa Maria Sopra Minerva Church. Aprius would also maintain control over Upper Egypt through the installation of his sister, help me out here, Ancnes Neferibre, as divine adoratrice of a moon at Thebes, a position she would hold for the next sixty years. Despite his skills as both a politician and builder, Aprius would remain dangerously lacking in one critical area of Egyptian leadership—military success. As mentioned previously, early in his reign, the pharaoh had sent Egyptian forces to break Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Jerusalem their subsequent defeat by the babylonians had led to mutiny in the important oswan garrison while this revolt was contained a more severe military crisis confronted aprius over a decade later in the late 570s bc the egyptians allied themselves with the libyans to counter dorian greek incursions into the territory of cyrenaica It's unclear why the pharaoh, or any 26th dynasty pharaoh for that matter, would take up arms against Greeks, unless they were directly threatening Egypt's borders, so there must have been something more to the picture, even if that something more was simply a large payment from Libyan chiefs. Aprius was at least smart enough to dispatch a native Egyptian force, as opposed to Greek mercenaries, to confront the invaders reasoning that the Greeks might be reluctant to make war on their own brothers. Or, you know, not, depending on which polis they were from. On the other hand, there was a reason why Greeks were highly esteemed as warriors. Aprius' native Egyptian force was easily outmatched by the Dorians, and suffered yet another humiliating defeat against a foreign enemy. For the Egyptian army, this was one military disaster too many. Conspiracy theories began to abound that maybe the pharaoh had wanted them to be defeated, in order to diminish the army's reputation standing in Egypt. Maybe he'd even use the defeat to push for a takeover of the army by his Greek allies. In fairly short order, Egyptian forces were on the march back toward Sais, with regime change foremost on their minds. Hearing the news, Aprius sent a respected Egyptian general named Amos— who had fought in Nubia under Samtuk II's army, to meet with the rebels and help defuse the situation. Except, the general ended up switching sides, and was quickly proclaimed the pharaoh Amos II, invoking the name of the ancient warrior king who had driven the Hyksos from Egypt almost a thousand years before. As Amos began leading rebel forces back toward the capital, more and more disgruntled Egyptian soldiers bolstered their numbers, leaving Aprius, with only his private army of Ionian Greek and Carian mercenaries, numbering around 30,000, to defend his hold on the throne. Seeing which way the wind was blowing, Aprius decided to flee the country, no doubt paying his Greek bodyguards handsomely to cover his exit, and turn to that age-old, rock-solid ally in times of Egyptian crisis. Um, Babylonia? Two years after the more or less successful siege of Tyre, Nebuchadnezzar II was all too eager to embrace the exiled pharaoh and his cause. But of course he would accompany Aprius back to Egypt, at the head of a large body of Babylonian troops, and help the pharaoh reclaim his rightful throne from the vile usurper. Best case, after an easy victory, Aprius would be reinstalled as a grateful and pliant vassal pharaoh, extending Babylonian rule in all but name over the southern kingdom. Worst case, the civil war would at least ravage Egypt to the point that whoever emerged from the conflict would be easy pickings for the armies of Babylon. Fueled by overconfidence, Nebuchadnezzar never bothered to envision the worst worst worst-case scenario— a Babylonian clay tablet records that in the 37th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of the country of Babylon, he went to Egypt to wage war. The ensuing battle, fought in 568 BC, resulted in the death of Aprius and a crushing defeat of Neo-Babylonian forces at the hands of Amos II. In the battle's aftermath and mirroring Ashurbanipal's decision from the previous century, Nebuchadnezzar decided that the subjugation of Egypt was a project best deferred to a later date. A common border was agreed upon, and the Chaldean king soon turned his attention to internal matters, leaving Egypt independent and under the control of the victorious general cum Amos II began his reign by having his predecessor's body respectfully transported to the capital of Sais, where Aprius was buried with full pharaonic and military honors. To further legitimize his ascension, Amos married Aprius' daughter, Chedebnit Gerbone II, tying himself by blood to the twenty sixth ruling dynasty. With the succession out of the way, Amos next focused on addressing the main issue that had brought him to power. Ever since the rule of Samtik I, Greek migrants had flowed into Egypt in ever greater numbers. In many ways, including trade, culture, and military skill, their presence had been a great boon to Egyptian society. However, the inherent problems of integrating the outward-looking Greeks into the conservative culture of their new home had never been adequately addressed. A balance needed to be struck, in which Egypt could continue to prosper from the Greek presence without allowing them to threaten the fundamental tenets of Egyptian society. The decision almost came to was centralization— In the time of Samtik I, Greek mercenaries had been settled into two military camps on either side of the Pelusian branch of the Nile. In the aftermath of the Civil War, Amos II closed these camps and relocated all Greek mercenaries to the old capital of Memphis, where he could more closely monitor their activities. Next, a solution was needed for the scattered Greek migrants currently residing in various cities and villages across the country. Amos selected the Egyptian city of Naukratis, situated along the Canoptic branch of the Nile, and handed it over lock, stock, and barrel to all Greek citizens of Egypt for their settlement. It was at once a generous gesture and a calculated move to concentrate Greek activities in one place under the pharaoh's control. The experiment was an unqualified success. Operating under the special trading rights and privileges granted by Amos II, Nacritus soon became a major seaport and commercial link between Egypt and Greece, similar to the role Almina in coastal Syria, had once played between Greece and the Near East. Over the next few centuries, the city would grow to become Egypt's most important commercial harbor, only losing the distinction to the later Hellenistic capital of Alexandria. Nocritus differed from other Greek colonies in being a truly pan-Hellenic endeavor, bereft of ties or obligations to any particular Greek city-state. The city's centerpiece was a walled shrine known as the Hellenian that was cooperatively financed by nine eastern Greek cities, both Dorian and Ionian. Citizens from several other Peleus, including Miletus, Samos, and Aegina, maintained their own separate sanctuaries. By Herodotus's later tally, natives of a dozen Greek cities lived and worked side by side in Nocritus, certainly a novelty in archaic Greek society. The Egyptians supplied the Greeks with grain, linen, and papyrus for which the Greeks traded silver, timber, olive oil, and wine in terms of culture. almost the second strove to keep the exchange flowing in one direction. Encouraging the export of Egyptian architectural and sculptural techniques back to Greece, while ensuring that new developments in Greek art and philosophy, ideas like, you know, men electing their own leaders, remain securely bound within the walls of Nacritus. Having seized power as a defender of Egyptian traditions against Greek influence, Amos II soon came to court Greek ties as fervently as his predecessors, and profited as handsomely in the bargain. Herodotus relates that, under Amos's prudent administration, Egypt reached a new pinnacle of wealth, allowing the pharaoh to adorn the temples of Lower Egypt with monolithic shrines and other monuments. While ruling from Sais, Amos maintained control over Upper Egypt through his new family ties with Achnes Neferibre, divine adoratrice of Amun at Thebes. The pharaoh also exerted a strong influence over the nearby Dorian Greek territories of Cyrenaica, and, sometime during the first decade of his rule, also managed to extend Egyptian control over the important northern island of Cyprus. Cyprus had spent the 7th century BC as a neo-Assyrian vassal, and only regained independence upon the empire's collapse. Phoenician colony of Kidian aside, Cyprus's population had been mainly Greek since Mycenaean times, and the ten kings who ruled the island were eager to restore ties with the larger Hellenic world. It was in this spirit, sometime during the 580s BC, that they welcomed the great lawgiver Solon to their shores. During his visit, the second stop on his extended Mediterranean tour, one of the kings requested that Solon design a new capital for him from scratch. Solon took on the project, and the city that arose from his designs was later named Soloi in his honor. When, some two decades later, Cyprus fell to the Egyptians, the main impact was adding yet another ingredient to the cultural stew the island had already become. Period statuary shows Cypriots sporting both Egyptian wigs and Assyrian-style beards. Like the Greeks who had settled Philistia during the Bronze Age collapse, the Cypriot Greeks had also absorbed much of the local Canaanite culture. Period tombs featured Phoenician-style pillars, and the island's main deity was the Phoenician goddess Astarte, with the king of Paphos acting as her high priest. Otherwise, a mixed pantheon of Phoenician and Egyptian gods predominated. After Cyprus, Solon sailed north, and soon arrived at the shores of the Anatolian kingdom of Lydia. Lydia. Doubts about the exact timing of his visit make it difficult to know whether it came before or after the 585 BC Battle of Hollis. However, since the period between 590 and 585 BC saw near-constant warfare between the Lydians and Medes, it seems more likely that his visit occurred after their eclipse-inspired truce. Either way, Solon was welcomed at the royal capital of Sardis by the Lydian king Alyattes and, presumably, his young son, the future king Croesus. Solon probably found Lydia an interesting place. Founded, as so many places seem to be, by legendary descendants of Heracles, its first historical king, Gyges, had elevated the kingdom into a great military power practically overnight. How had he done it? Well, first, he'd increased the country's size by claiming central Anatolian territories once held by the Phrygians. Shortly afterward, Lydia had been confronted by a great threat in the form of a massive invasion of Sumerian raiders. But the threat only provided serious inspiration, not ability. The real source of the kingdom's power the one that enabled it to raise and equip an army strong enough to drive out the Sumerians and later fight the Medes to a standstill, was simply this. The Lydians were incredibly, fabulously, ridiculously wealthy. The magnificent Lydian capital of Sardis had, literally, a river of gold running through it. The Pactolus River, flowing down from Mount Timolis, contained vast deposits of electrum, a naturally occurring alloy of gold and silver. Legend had it that the metal source was King Midas of Phrygia, who had washed away his Midas touch in the waters of the Pactolus. For Lydian kings, it was only a matter of extracting, and later refining, the metal, in order to fund whatever endeavors they put their minds to. For the last century, the endeavor had mainly been war. After defeating the Sumerians, the Lydians had set themselves to conquering the powerful cities of Ionian Greece, intending to bring all of western Anatolia under their rule. But the Ionians had proven a tough nut to crack. One of Lydia's first targets had been the city of Smyrna, founded by colonists from Aeolia and legendary birthplace of the poet Homer. Smyrna was situated at the mouth of the Hermus River, at the head of a deep arm of the Aegean Sea, that reached far inland and admitted Greek trading ships deep into the heart of Lydia. This strategic position placed it on an essential, and therefore lucrative, trade route between Anatolia and the Aegean, a distinction it shared with the nearby cities of Miletus and Ephesus. To secure its defense, Smyrna constructed a large fortress commanding the nearby valley of Nymphae and kept a wary eye out for potential threats from the east. Those threats were not long in coming. The early Elydian king Gyges had attacked and been routed by the Smyrnaeans on the banks of the Hermus River. The defeat must have been a stinging one, since Gyges and his successors soon turned their attention to repeatedly attacking the rival Ionian city of Miletus. It was only during the reign of the current king, Aliates, that Lydian forces had once again marched against Smyrna. This time, the city had been taken and sacked, and, though not destroyed, its Greek polis structure was reorganized into a village system, and its unique culture and character quickly faded. Eventually, Western aggression had given way to the growing Eastern threat of media, only recently stemmed at the Battle of the Hollis. In the battle's wake, Lydia sat, quite literally, at the crossroads between East and west Powerful, wealthy, and at peace with both the Ionians and the Medes, her future appeared to be hers for the choosing. It's perhaps in this context that we can set the apocryphal conversation between Solon, the elder statesman, and Croesus, the Lydian crown prince. With the world sprawled out before him, his future kingship assured, and no foreign threats on the horizon, the young prince enthused that there could be no happier man than he in the entire world. Solon, in an epic bout of bummerism and a sage warning on the fickleness of fortune, advised Croesus that he should count no man happy until he be dead. Thanks, Solon. I'll uh, see you later, okay? I have to go roll around a bit more in my huge piles of gold. Speaking of huge piles of gold, it's time to discuss the most revolutionary innovation of early 6th century Lydia, the invention of coinage. Yes, that's right, just think about it for a minute. Kings, priests, soldiers, administrators, merchants, and thieves have all been stockpiling, sacking, stealing, looting, trading, and paying precious metals to and from one another for a few thousand years already, and none of it ever has been in the form of coins. Not until Lydia, and not until the reign of King Alyattes. I'm not sure where I'd rank it compared to early Sumerian inventions, like irrigation or writing or, you know, beer, but the concept of coinage, essentially stamped lumps of a particular metal of a specified weight and purity, is probably pretty up there in terms of its impact on human society. The first question, of course, is what the heck were people using before coins for all the exchanges mentioned above? In the Mediterranean region, at least, previous currency had basically consisted of metal ingots of standard sizes and shapes. However, what these ingots lacked, again, until Lydia, was a stamp or mark certifying them to be of a definite exchange value. The earliest Lydian coins, made of local electrum, were likely crafted as ceremonial objects, such as badges or medals, and were issued by priests. Once Aleatis decided to patronize the practice, coins began to be produced in larger quantities, and were commonly stamped with the image of a lion's head in a sunburst, the royal sigil of the Mermnad ruling family. Even from the outset, there were attempts to game the system. Naturally occurring electrum in Anatolia typically has around a 70-90% to gold content, which someone receiving an electrum coin would naturally assume they were getting, but the Lydians quickly learned to alloy the coins with additional refined silver and copper, bringing the actual gold content down to around 50%. The earliest such lionhead coins were found in excavations at the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, which would later evolve, during the reign of King Croesus, into one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The core Lydian denomination was known as the Stater, meaning standard and coins were minted from a one stater value down to a 196 stater value, with the most common being a one-third stater. Although all coins of equal weight were credited with equal value within Lydia, once word of their variable gold content spread, the value of electrum coins was increasingly challenged by wary foreign merchants. It wasn't until the widespread use of pure silver coins in the 570s BC, an innovation credited to King Phaedon of the Greek city of Argos, that the concept became stable enough to really catch on. As implied above, the Greeks were among the first to embrace the minting of coins. Unsurprisingly, among the early adopters were the Ionian Greek cities of Miletus, Ephesus, Phocaea, and Theos. From there, the practice spread over the rest of the 6th century BC to mainland Greece, the cities of Magna Graecia, and beyond. The coins featured different symbols, weights, and denominations, but the fact that they were made of pure silver, widely available in the Greek mainland, meant that their value was the same everywhere, and could be determined based on their weight alone. Almost more than any other factor, the rapid and widespread adoption of coinage shows just how much Mediterranean trade was booming in the 6th century BC, with any media that could simplify and accelerate transactions being quickly embraced. Coinage also served to further unify the Greek world in its common use, while permitting each separate community individual expression. A perfect Greek cultural match, if ever there was one. Not to go too far out on a limb, but the universality of exchange permitted by coinage could also be viewed as aligning with contemporary trends in Greek philosophy, the search for an irreducible substance to which all things could be related. If we presume, probably without much risk, that Solon made a final stop in Miletus to discuss philosophy and politics with his friend and colleague Thales, he may have been introduced to one of the most prominent exponents of this new hypothesis. Anaximander of Miletus, Thales's junior by some dozen years, also held that all things came from a single primal substance The difference was that Anaximander did not believe the substance to be water, but something different than anything we know, something both infinite and eternal, all of which, of course, is not too far off the mark. Anaximander is also credited as the first man to have made a map of the world, which he believed shaped like a cylinder, and proposed that the sun was comparable to the earth in size, perhaps only twenty or thirty times as large even more than Thales, Anaximander was consistently rational and scientific in his approach, clearly presaging the growing Greek trend in this direction. After what was likely an enjoyable and enlightening stop in Ionia, around 580 BC, the great lawgiver Solon finally embarked upon the last leg of his voyage, the one that would bring him back home. Pulling into Phaleron Harbor, predecessor of the later Athenian port of Piraeus, he was likely greeted by crowds of well-wishers, citizens, and dignitaries, all eager for tales of his decade at sea and of the many wonders he'd seen in distant lands. Would Solon have found the city much changed over the decades since his departure? Certainly, he would have felt a new energy infusing the city, as reflected by the many civic projects and the drawing boards. He also would have found much that was familiar— including stories of the continuing corruption and flouting of the spirit of his laws by the Eupatridae. Being an Athenian, Solon could hardly have been surprised at the news, and had to seek contentment in the fact that he'd done his level best to instill a sense of justice into the polis. Beyond that, he could only put his faith in his fellow citizens and the blessings of Athena, that his city would continue to prosper and, above all, resist the threat and temptation of tyranny. Next episode it's back to the Near East, where we'll visit the court of the powerful Chaldean king Nebuchadnezzar II, as he seeks to both painstakingly restore and extravagantly build upon the glories of ancient Babylon. We'll continue to follow events in Greece and Anatolia as new leaders take power, new alliances form, and new threats emerge from unexpected quarters. And we'll watch media under the rule of King Astyages, give birth to both a new religion and a new world empire, as their vassals, the Achaemenid Persians, step from the shadow of their former masters. All this next time on The Ancient World.